Today we're going to be in John chapter 14. As we continue through the Gospel of John, things to remember that at this point we're in the final hours of Christ's life. He went from, he went to the upper room and he had washed his disciples' feet after they were arguing about who would be the greatest. He demonstrated true humility and service to those around him. Just moving along. John 14 here, he says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. says, if you had known me, you would known, have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. We have seen him because we've seen Christ. He's telling them, I am the, fa- I am the father and we are one. We're one in nature. He was sent here to do the will of the father, to redeem a people unto himself for his own purpose and pleasure. His disciples are they're hurt. They know he's leaving. They had served with him and ministered to him for three and a half years. And the first whole, up to chapter 12, is all about Christ's ministry. And the last half of the whole book is most of it's in the upper room as he's ministering to his disciples. And then in a few short hours, he'd be praying for this cup to pass from him. If it be the Father's will, but yet not my will, but thy will be done. That cup was the wrath of God that was about to be poured out on him on our behalf. Today, we're going to be concentrating on verses 21 down to verses 27. Keep in mind, he's comforting these men. The man that's about to die is the, com- is the comforter. He's comforting the ones he's about to leave behind. Usually, we comfort those that are dying. We show them that we love them and we minister to them. But the, the Lord of glory is ministering to his disciples and also to us through his word. So as we meditate on this this morning, I would ask that you consider these things as the final hours of Christ's life. He had kept all the commandments. He had fulfilled the law. He was about to die as a ransom for many. It should weigh heavy on the hearts of any child of God. Please stand if you're able as we give honor To the word of God, this bread of life. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. 
And he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. O merciful Father, please bless the preaching of your word this morning. Please take this bread of life, use it to nourish us. Let it bring us closer to you. Let us bring glory and honor to you in all that we say and do. We love you and we praise you. All God's children said, Amen. So this is the second time Jesus mentions obedience to his commands. The first was back in verse 15 here. Alexander McLaren wrote, There are two reasons for keeping his commandments. One, because they are commanded. All right. Two, because we love him who commands. The one is slavery. The other is liberty. The one is the Arctic, Arctic, cold and barren. The other is like tropical islands full of warmth and sunshine, glorious and glad fertility. Genuine faith is free and happy obedience, obedience to Christ. The keeping of the commandments does not save us. It's merely a tutor. It shows us that we are sinners. We are sinners in need of a Savior, which, by the way, we'll get to the sinner thing here in a minute. Romans 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for the law. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So it brings us the knowledge of sin. By, by no works, keeping of the law can, can do anything for us. We cannot be saved by the works of the law. I had a conversation with a lady that was trying to convince me that John MacArthur was a false teacher because he would admit that he still sinned, he still fell short, which is true. And when questioning her about it, it was that we were capable of perfect obedience, perfect righteousness. But at first John tells us that we're not and that we have an advocate with the Father, we would confess our sin, and we have an advocate with the Father who is able to forgive us. So why do we love him? Because he first loved us. That's First John 4.10. We have a new desire through the, the work and the, and the Spirit of God. Our desires are now his desires. As Josh went over, uh, anything you ask of me, I will give it. it. It's anything that we ask will be in line with his desires because that's the new creation that we are. We're able to keep the commands of Christ. So the question now becomes, is it us or is it God that enables us? It's, it's kind of both. Our sanctification is a product of our obedience and to Christ. James 2.
verses 14 through 26. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food? And one of you says to him, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. But, but you do not give them the things that are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say to you, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Without works is dead. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So verse 15 and 16, we see this service demonstrating love. So Abraham loved God. He was willing to do what we would consider an atrocious act, which was a foreshadowing of what God was going to do on our behalf with his own son. But God stayed his hand and provided another sacrifice. But Abraham was willing to go that far. Verse 18 in James there is genuine faith demonstrated by works. And then verse 19, the demons believe there's one God. And like Josh has pointed out before, the demons, they're scared. Most unbelievers aren't. And a lot of people will say there's one God, but they're not even scared of him. Verse 25, Rahab's obedience was, was immediately after her conversion. She believed God and then she helped these people of God. Verse 26, it's just as the body without the spirit is dead, faith without works is dead also. The, the, the word spirit here, I honestly think that's kind of a, not the greatest translation uh, for that. The word is pneuma, and, and if you look at spirit, it's lowercase. So pneuma means uh, obviously like the Holy Spirit, like uh, your spirit, like your, your, uh, your soul. In another word, it, pneuma means air, anything air. Uh, like the, the, the word, uh, God's word is God breathed, theonoustos would be the Greek. And then, so in this context, is, is James was very matter of fact about things. I think pneuma would be better translated as breath. And it, it would mean that just as the body apart from the breath is dead, faith without works is dead also. So faith and obedience go hand in hand. And a lot of people, you know, some, some people had a problem with James because he kept saying works, works, works. You could replace the word works with fruit. Or obedience. So our, our sanctification is a combination of the Spirit of God applying the, the Word of God to our hearts. And that makes us more like the Son of God. That sanctification, we become more Christ-like as we, we travel through this world, as we're pilgrims. And we're, we're moving toward that, that great heavenly city. So H.B. Charles says this, it is the will of God to have the spirit of God use the word of God to make the children of God 
looked like the Son of God. So we have four elements in sanctification. The Father, the Spirit, the Word, and Christ. The Father, the Spirit, and the Word are, are the process. The Son's likeness is the product. We will become more Christ-like. When God sees one he has sanctified or set apart, he sees the Son's righteousness. He doesn't see our failures, our shortcomings anymore. All he sees is us clothed in the righteousness of Christ as he came down off of the, the judgment seat and declared you not guilty and he wraps you in the clothes of Christ. He says, you're mine. Our responsibility in this process is to be in the word. The spirit cannot apply what we don't know. That's our responsibility as, as children. We read his word, the spirit applies that word. We grow in the knowledge and grace of Christ and we become more Christ-like. Our full sanctification is when we go home. We are made completely like Christ. No more sin, no more, no more crying, no more pain. Glorified body, completely Christ-like. And something to consider too, Nowhere in the New Testament is a redeemed person considered a sinner. We are labeled as saints. The sanctified ones. It comes from the Greek sanctos, the ones set apart. We are children of the Most High God. We are adopted children of the Most High God. And cannot be unadopted. God cannot look upon a sinner he cannot look upon sin at all he has declared us not guilty through the works of his son you are no longer a sinner you're a saint so if you live with this idea that I'm a sinner I'm a sinner I'm a sinner you're stunning your growth you're already behind the eight ball you're a child of God It stunts the growth of a believer. It's, it's an insult to the work of Christ because he has declared you not guilty. Do we still fail? Yes. Romans 8.37 says that we were more, more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're still labeled sinners. Christ accomplished nothing. We're again slaves. Romans 8.37 would be better read. We are less than conquerors, waiting for something. The more we saturate ourselves in the word, the more the spirit will incline our hearts toward Christ and his commands. We will delight in them. Psalm 119. We're going to read the whole thing. Not really. Verse 97. Gosh, it's long. And David. David says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. 
I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not, not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. This is David, and we know that David wasn't exactly perfect, but God said he's a man after my own heart. What a glorious honor. So he meditates on the law, day and night, how? He reads it. He keeps the law, how? By the Spirit of God, applying the Word of God, sanctification. It's always been the same Old Testament all the way until now. The Spirit of God working on the believer, the saint. We see that they're also loved by the Father here in John chapter chapter 5 verse 23 to dishonor Christ excuse me I lost my place they're also loved by the Father here in chapter 14 in John chapter 5 Verse 23, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. So to, honor the, to hate the Son is to hate the Father. They're one, they're one in essence, one spirit. The world hates both the Father and the Son. Then they suppress this truth and unrighteousness. They hate the created order. And we see that all too well played out in the world. I, my wife, I've not been on news much lately, but she just pointed out that California has decided that a bee is a, a fish for some odd reason. I don't know if you've heard that or not. And then we have the whole transgender stuff that is being, you know, forced upon us. So, you know, and it, the, the thing too, with the transgender thing, they, they want you to call them by a different pronoun or they want you to address me as this or that. And the, one of the most common ones is, is call me they, them. And if you, you think of the, the demons that Christ expelled from that person, he said, we are legion for we are many. And I always wondered why these people wanted to be called they, them. It's always plural. So it's demonic. I don't, I don't know what correlation there is, if there is any, but it is demonic. It is going against the created order. They hate God so much, they want to redefine what God has defined. They hate the truth. They suppress the truth. The world says to find your truth. Christ says, I am the way and the truth. Back up in verse 6 here in the same chapter. The world is at enmity with God. The world hates God. It's never going to change. So we keep the commandments out of love. 
God loves us, Christ will manifest himself to us, it says. He will put himself on display to us. He will, we will know him, and our love for him will grow continually. It's an ongoing thing. Sanctification. We become increasingly, he will become increasingly real to us as we grow in the knowledge of him. He will grow ever more important in our lives as, as we grow in sanctification. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We walk with Christ. We grow in knowledge while living in this flesh, not in the flesh, in our earthly bodies. This earthly life is we obey him. So we're continuing on. We're sojourners and pilgrims. And in our jobs, in our homes, in our families, our communities, we're obeying Christ's commands. It's our desire. It's essential for the, for the child of God to be nourished by the word of God. Absolutely essential. I was at my mom's house yesterday and she was cooking and she was so worried about how everything was for us and how if it tasted right or, you know, it, it was, she was just worried to death. I was like, mom, eat, sit down, enjoy what you've prepared. And I thought about how it's, you know, like preaching, you 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 kind of preparing a meal for your friends and those that you love, and you you don't really necessarily care about how palatable it is, but is it going to nourish my my family? Not, I mean, any church can make it palatable. <laughs> if you want to be popular, you just well, we all know that story. But we we want to be nourished by the Word of God, and this this the church suffers greatly from malnourishment. We've got so many. You know, programs, I had a guy talking to me about it. it's, it's programs, programs, programs. And we have people that would come here and like, well, you don't have enough programs. And they, or they would come, you should do this ministry. You all should start this ministry. I'm like, well, great. You want to head that up? No, no. You know, it's, instead they would just leave and go find a church that offered something that they were, they were seeking. And instead of, instead of, you know, church is somewhere to, you should see what you can do. Like, what, what can I do to serve, not to be served necessarily? We all serve each other in some capacity. But the church is greatly malnourished. We're not in the word enough. The church as a whole. So Jesus is comforting his disciples. Keep that in mind. Hours away from his death. He was told. He told them he was like, I'm, I'm leaving. It's coming. And Judas, not Iscariot, so John makes it clear, like, not, not that guy, not that guy. <laughs> he wants to make that distinction. You know, Judas has left, he's making his deal as, as Christ is, is comforting the rest of the disciples. And John's making sure that it's a different Judas. 
And he was under the, the, the assumption that Christ would be returning physically to, to establish his kingdom. He didn't, he didn't understand that Christ would not, why, why Christ is not going to disclose himself to the world and only to, to his children or to the believers. That's, he didn't understand that. So he knew that Christ was the Savior of the world, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the rightful heir to the world. The good news of salvation would be proclaimed throughout the world. And Judas was, was confused. Why would he manifest himself to only those that love him? And Jesus emphasizes, and for a third time here, he's like, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Obedience, again, is a product of love. If you, I mean, we, we see it. I mean, even the atheist will have some type of obedience out of love for someone or something. And again, those, those that love him, the Father will also love. And take a little further here. The Father and Son will, will make their abode with him. We'll set up shop. Live. Back in verse 15, we had the promise of the Holy Spirit. In verses 19 through 24, we had the indwelling of the Father and the Son. So we have the triune God residing within us. The living God. So we're independently these temples of the Holy Spirit. You know, everybody's waiting for the third temple to be built. You're it. Collectively with the household of God. The triune God lives within you. And he says on the negative, he who does not love me does not keep my word. Love emphasized only from the opposite viewpoint. Love and obedience again inseparable. John 7, 17 says, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. These that are his will know the doctrine. They know whether the teaching is from God. Next chapter, verse 47. He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. He's talking to the Jews, the most religious people around. <laughs> Arguing about how they were children of Abraham. And Jesus was telling them, like, if you were Abraham's children, you would know me. They didn't. Directly to this man, Christ is speaking. They were incapable of seeing who he was. They could not see the Christ. Why? It's because they were enemies. They were at enmity with him. They hated him. The Spirit of God had not revealed who Christ was to them. Their desires would not be in line with keeping his commands. They kept the commands of God loosely. But out of duty, they were slaves. They didn't do it out of love because they were un incapable of doing it. I had a guy, he's a, he was an atheist, he, he was talking to me. He said, oh, I think the Bible is just a list of uh, just a bunch of rules. I'm like, it absolutely is. It's, it's, it's for us. It's for all of humanity to be able to function as a society. And he said, well, I disagree. I said, name me one commandment. Let me one thing that God told us to do that wasn't good for humanity as a whole. Couldn't do it. Why? Because it, you can't. 
they borrow from our worldview. To you know, everybody wants to be treated like a Christian. You know, like you, you would like for me to treat you as Christ commands me to treat you, but it's never. It's often not reciprocal, especially in the uh, in the secular world. I mean, of course, in the church, it is. To reject Christ is to reject the Father. To have Christ is to have the Father. It's that simple. And he says, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all the things that I said to you. His earthly ministry, Christ was the source of truth for his disciples. He's leaving. These things. The Father's word had been spoken while, while he was with them. He, he was speaking on behalf of the Father. He was doing the Father's will. But the helper, the paraclete. Meaning the one that comes alongside. I'm leaving. There will be one to come alongside. It would be a comfort in, in the absence of Christ. The spirit of truth would guide them all in truth and bring to remembrance all the things that Christ said. He had received the word of God firsthand. The Spirit applies those truths that Christ, Christ taught them personally. And today, you know, we have His written word. We have more than the disciples had. And the same Spirit applies that truth. Love and obedience, again, the product. Sanctification, again, it's a process, it's ongoing. If you're not in the Word, you're, you're, your growth is stunted. And sanctification is complete again when we go home. Just as, the, the, as Christ had came in the Father's name, the Spirit comes in His name. The Spirit will be in perfect harmony with the Father and the Son. The Spirit will glorify Christ. As we'll see later in chapter 16, the Spirit is to testify about Christ. The Spirit is our teacher. First John. Two. Verse 20, but you have an anointing. From the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. Whoever and he who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he had promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from him 
abides in you, and you do not need to teach any, anyone to teach you. But the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. The Spirit illuminates the Word of God to our understanding. He gives us a knowledge of God, which leads us to maturity in Christ. That's why when a believer hears the Word of God, it rings true in their heart. And they say, yes, that's right. You can't help it. You can't help but to feel a peace come over you when you hear God's word spoken. In Philippians 4, verses 6 through 9, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which, surpass, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good, if there's any virtue, let it be anything that praiseworthy. Meditate on these things, these things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me. These do, and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. The spirit of comfort. When I have a bad day, which is sometimes quite often, I'll call my brother Josh. Sometimes I call Sean. And the one thing that happens, it doesn't matter what my problem is, he might start talking about something he was studying. Or Sean as well. And then I start talking about the things of the Lord. I start talking about scripture and I just start talking about the things that bring me joy in the Lord and before I know it I forget what my problem was and for those things I'm grateful and sometimes I try to do that with people that have problems and they call me this is what we need to do this is what you should meditate on you're a child of God there's joy to be had in that So we know that the love of God is manifested because he first loved us. This love inclines our hearts to obedience. And this obedience produces greater love because we're in the word. And the spirit of God applies that word and inclines our hearts to greater love and obedience. And it's just reciprocal. It's just over and over and over. You grow and grow and grow. We've been a church for, what, 10 years maybe? And I've seen people come, and I've seen people go, and the ones that are here, I've seen them grow exponentially. I've seen, we've been through about everything imaginable you could go through as a church. And the love that is, is here in this church is overwhelming because our common Savior, our Lord, Christ, who comforts us and strengthens us, strengthens us as a church. 
So this obedience comes alongside this. He comes alongside this paraclete and ministers to us. And then, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives you, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So the, the idea of world peace in, in all reality is an oxymoron, because the world does not give you peace. The world is at enmity with God. We're at war. Well, the world is at war. We're not at war. There can be no peace if there's ever still an enemy. So the world... The world's enemy is God, and vice versa. The, the, the first commandment is the most severely broken of all the commandments because apart from that, you can't really do any of the rest of the commandments. It doesn't work that way. It says, my peace I give to you. Shalom. This word for peace in the Old Testament is around 250 times. It means both personal peace and the absence of trouble. So the absence of trouble is definitely a blessing from God. Although we're not uh, immune from that trouble. Inevitably trouble will find us, but it's what do we do when it comes to this true peace comes from the Spirit of God comforting us in these trials. It's, that's what genuine peace is, our reaction to trials. James tells us, to count it all joys, joy the trials that you're about to, to come. They'll produce patience and let patience have its perfect work in you. One of our old members, when I was preaching through James, I, I come to that very first thing and I called him and I said, he had, he had had a stroke, he lost his job, his wife had breast cancer. There's several other things that happened. His daughter was raped, beaten, and left for dead. His wife got breast cancer again. It was just on and on and on. I mean, it was just, I called him and I said, if you could change any of that, would you? He said, absolutely not. Didn't even think about it. And I knew why. He's, and he, and before I could say anything else, he said, it drew me so much closer to God. I leaned on him and it made me ever more grateful for the love of God. He had a peace through these trials. It made him stronger. The world's definition of peace is the absence of conflict. So, you know, when has that ever happened? There's always some war to be fought, or whether it's on a national, international level, or within your own house with, you know, a disobedient kid or something. It's just always something. There's always a conflict all the time. There's only one source for this peace. And Christ here in this upper room, comforting the remaining 11 disciples the night before his death, knowing of their broken heartedness, he was leaving. He was comforting them. He promised that his spirit would dwell within them. And not only the spirit of the Father and the Son, also present eternally. So this temporary sadness, the sorrow would be turned to eternal joy. This is the basis of, of the supernatural peace. You cannot have peace apart from the knowledge of God. 
New Testament peace is a right standing before God. It's a supernatural, transforming peace. It inclines our hearts toward him. Our desires become that which pleases him. Only God could bring this peace. And in his mercy, right, right after the fall, right after Adam and Eve messed up the plan of salvation, immediately, says that her seed, capital S, Christ, will be redeemed. He would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise his heel. All the way back then, the promise of a redeemer, all the way back then, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at work, bringing those to glory. It would be through this seed that we could know everlasting peace. It's the only way. God is both just and the justifier, bringing a people unto himself for his own purpose and pleasure. Our sin was taken by Christ. He suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. We have been crucified with Christ. As Paul says, you no longer live, but Christ which lives in us. There can be no peace apart from love. It's a prerequisite for, for peace. Like you can't, it's unattainable. And genuine love is only the love of God, which all other love stems from. There's no other, there's no greater love. If there's no God, there's no peace, period. If you know God, you can know that peace. And it will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It's the only way. Oh, merciful Father, we thank you so much for the sacrifice in Christ that we may be even capable of desiring to keep your commands that the peace of God would even be close to a reality for anyone you've set your love upon us you have made us righteous in your sight you have called us saints the set apart ones who may we glorify you in it we love you we praise your holy name all God's children say